And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. David B. Garner, Vice President for Advancement and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Garner, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be back with you and to have this opportunity to to share in the God's Word together. You know, uh, before we turned on the mic, we were talking a little bit about uh, the book of Galatians and Galatians 3 and following and justification by faith. And that uh, just begs the whole question of how God works through history and with his people, Abram and Moses and David and finally in sending our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm just wondering if you could uh, share with our listeners today some of those thoughts that you shared with me, David, uh, before sure. before we turned on the mic. Oh, I'd be delighted to. You know, um, much of the New Testament in God's providence was, was given to us through the Apostle Paul, who was, as he himself describes himself, as was a, was a Jew of Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a man that knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand, and in in God's uh, providence, he was chosen to be that great apostle to the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul, throughout his ministry, even in his apostleship to the Gentiles, was ever mindful that the gospel was that which came through the promises to Israel and were, were delivered in, in their culminating form in, in the greater son of, of great David, that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the apostle Paul, because he was an apostle, was a man of God's word. And it is striking as we get to the book of Galatians, for example, that the apostle Paul, even in this particular book, is completely tethered to God's Word in the Old Testament as he thinks about the meaning and significance of the person and work of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So Galatians is one of those books that actually, as you read it from, it's just a short book, but if you read it from the first chapter to the last, you'll, you'll see that the Apostle Paul, as he considers salvation, he does so from the vantage point of the whole of God's revelation in history. It doesn't, the, the gospel for Paul doesn't begin with the arrival of Jesus on the scene. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the promises that had been given in the Old Testament. And so that's just explicit, especially as we turn to Galatians chapters 3 and 4. So I'd love to just talk about that a little bit, if it would be helpful to our, our listeners, just to consider the way in which the Apostle Paul views the work of Christ for our, our salvation being tied to what was given in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, in uh, Galatians I, I think um, Paul was uh, correcting um, a misunderstanding that God's people had. Um, is is that how it comes out? Well, it surely is the case that he he's doing a couple of things. Um, the The correction is strong; it is stark, but it, it's a correction not of the theology of the Old Testament. But it, and this is an important point for people to realize: Paul doesn't come and correct Old Testament theology or Old Testament revelation, he actually corrects a false understanding and abuse of it. 
And so when we, when we come to Galatians 1, you remember, this is the only letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that uh, does not have words of commendation. He, he dives in uh, in a very critical posture because, not because he's critical in spirit, but precisely the opposite, because of his compassion for his readers who are distorting and abusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the the way in which he begins in Galatians 1, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. And so Paul is very concerned that the his readers, that his hearers, understand the purity of the gospel of grace that comes in and through Jesus Christ. But what he does when he gets to Galatians 3 is that he demonstrates that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, is not a newfangled message, but it is actually the fulfillment of the proper biblical understanding of the Old Testament. It doesn't work counter to the Old Testament. It is the answer to the Old Testament that is thoroughly gracious from beginning to end. So why don't, if you don't mind, I'd love to, Dan, just talk a little bit about what Paul does in Galatians 3, if I might. Oh, yes, by all means, go right ahead. So when Paul begins chapter three to uh, to writing the Galatians, he he returns back to some pretty stark language. Uh, he he writes in, in verse one, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" Uh, Paul is is deeply troubled over their distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what does he do? Well, he goes back to Abram, Galatians chapter three, verses seven through nine. In fact, I think it'd be worthwhile for me just to read this briefly, if I might. He he writes in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul writes, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, here's what Paul does. In order to correct the false thinking of his audience, he turns them back to the revelation of God to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17 speak of the call of Abram, and then in Genesis 15, we see the explicit covenant that God made with Abraham. In fact, in Genesis 15, 18, we see that uh, God describes this revelation as the covenant that he has made with Abraham. That is re-articulated in Genesis 17, and then frankly, through the remainder of Genesis, to to Isaac and to Jacob. Um, that the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of covenant with his people. So this, this notion of the, the promise of blessing is is grounded in the words that God gave Abram in Genesis 12. And that's what Paul is referring to here in Galatians 3. Well, that raised all sorts of questions. In what way is that promise that was given to Abraham connected to what the gospel that Paul preached in, in, in the, to the church of Galatia and throughout his ministry? 
Well, in part, the answer to that, Paul makes it a little bit more perceptibly difficult for himself because he not only talks about the the covenant given to Abraham, but the next thing he moves to is the law that was given through Moses. And in Galatians chapter 3, he uh, describes this covenant that was given to Moses as well. In fact, the question that Paul raises is, after the promise is given to Abraham, then we have some 400 years later, the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the question becomes, does the law overturn the promises that were given to Abraham? Well, Paul answers that question with a definitive, absolutely not. He says, why was the law given? In verse 19, he says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to who the promise had been made. So what what Paul is arguing is that the law, and you'll see this actually if you read this in verses 23 and following in chapter 3, that the law was given not to change God's dealings with his people, but the law, part of the function of the law was to illumine their sinfulness so that they would see the need for the promised seed that was given to Abram, that there was going to be one who came from the descendancy of Abram who would be the promised redeemer. And the Mosaic law doesn't overturn that. Quite the contrary, it's totally complicit with it and is there to fortify the need for that promised Savior to come. So I guess what I ought to mention here as well is this is not just Paul's own newfangled thought. We don't have time to do this today, Dan, but it would be very useful for our for the for the listeners here to to go back and look at Exodus chapter 2 where God's dealings with Moses are tied directly to the promises that were given to Abraham. In fact, in Exodus chapter 2, I believe it's verses 23 to 25, the covenant that was given to Moses, that law that was given to Moses, comes in the context explicitly referring back to the covenant that was given to Abraham. So Paul is being a very good Old Testament theologian here. He's recognizing that God gave promise to Abraham. He gave the law to Moses. All of those work together to deliver the very Savior that was to come, who was none less than the Lord Jesus Christ. And as God remembered his covenant promises to his people throughout the generations, he answers them in Jesus. So let me take a step back here for a minute and just talk about Galatians as a whole. What is Paul doing? He's concerned to preserve the integrity of the grace of God in the gospel, in the good news. How does he do that? He goes back to Abraham. He says in Galatians 3 verse 8 that the gospel of Jesus is the same gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. Jesus is the answer to the promises for Abraham. Moses, when he gave the law, does not overturn those promises to Abraham. He fortifies the need for them and exposes the very gospel message itself. So if I might, Dan, just mention here that the closing of Galatians chapter 3 says this, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then verse 29 says this, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is he saying? He is saying that those of us who are children of God by grace through faith are children of Abraham. Now, Dan, I am not a Jew by ethnic descent. Um, I am a Gentile through and through. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is equally mine because the Savior that came through Israel, according to the promises of Abraham, the promises given to Moses, and then extended through the Old Testament through David, and then to the prophets through the period of the exile, all of those promises come to fruition in Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of Jew and Gentile, in direct fulfillment of the word given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there's a covenant given to Abraham. There's a covenant given to Moses. There's a covenant given to David. There's a new covenant that is promised through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel. And those covenants come to their fruition in the new covenant, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is our savior, according to the promises of grace given to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis twelve fifteen and 17. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking how that God is so merciful. He He talks about Christ. He talks about the seed with a capital S. Yes. Um, way back there. And the words are used that the gospel was preached to Abraham. It just is fascinating, the continuity uh, all the way through. Well, you know, and I would like to encourage us to think about why is there such continuity? And this takes us back to what we see, for example, in in the book of Ephesians, when we see that the gospel which Paul preached was actually in place in the mind and purposes of God from before the foundation of the world. In other words, the gospel plan and purpose was designed even before there was an atom of dust in the creation itself. Um, and, and so why is there continuity between Old and New Testaments? Precisely because the God who made all things determined before he made all things that he would reveal himself as a gracious God and that his grace would be manifest in a world that would be corrupted and distorted by sin and that he would redeem his people in that world, and he would promise that redemption in the Old Testament. He would deliver that redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament speaks explicitly of Jesus as the answer to the promises of God. As Paul will say, Jesus is the yes and the amen to the covenant promises of God. Amen. I enjoyed following you as you read um, the latter part of chapter 3 also where it talks about us being all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ and that it transcends our position in life, whether we're a slave yes, or whether we're free men, women. Um, there's no difference, even male and female, 
all of that we're one in Jesus Christ that that is um that's the basis for true freedom in society it seems it, it is and what i think is unique just in this discussion is to recognize that that unity though experienced not in its fullness as we ought to enjoy it now that unity of gospel grace is the same message that was preached to Abraham. Abraham did not have all of the revelation that we had. God had not completed his redemptive purposes yet uh, on the stage of history, but we stand on equal footing with Abraham and Sarah in terms of our redemption being through none other than Jesus Christ. Abraham and Sarah looked forward to him. You and I and all the other believers in Christ Jesus look back on his finished work, and yet together we look forward to his return, at which time all the people of the tribes and tongues and nations that God has promised, from which God has promised to save, all of us will be gathered together at the same throne, bowing our knees together, declaring together, worthy is the Lamb. We will have that privilege of doing that with Abraham and Sarah. Think about that. Mm, yeah. Someplace the scriptures use the phrase, the Israel of God. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually in Galatians. Um, the Israel of God. It's interesting the way in which the term Israel um, is is used. I, Israel, you know, has a, a national function historically. God did set apart Israel as a nation, and, and through that, we see that that God has the purpose of establishing a kingdom. But that Israelite kingdom is not to be seen in purely nationalistic terms. But rather, even as we see in the book of Hebrews, that, that Abraham, as Hebrews 11 will describe for us, was anticipating not a kingdom of this earth, not a, a parcel of real estate on this earth, but he was looking to a heavenly city, to, to a heavenly kingdom. And that what Israel's function in the Old Testament as a national people is not to be perceived in crass political identity, but rather as a manifestation of the fact that God is going to gather his people, he's going to call them together, and he is going to give us not just a parcel of real estate in Palestine, but he is, as Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that the, the meek will inherit the entire earth that the new heavens and the new earth are, are ours by virtue of our faith union with Jesus Christ. So how does Israel fit in that? Well, the Israel of God is the people of God. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul will say that not all Israel is of Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he's got two things in mind in Romans 9, 5 when he says this. He has, on the one hand, that not everyone who is a biological descendant of Abraham is actually a child of faith. So not all Israel that is Israel ethnically is Israel spiritually. In the same way, Paul is also saying those of us who are Gentiles 
are actually engrafted into the the covenant purposes of God, the, the people of God, so that we actually become spiritual Israel in view of our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church, his people, his Israel, if I might say it that way. So the Israel of God is a a concept that actually reveals for us the spiritual nature of the people of God, that it is a redeemed body, not an ethnic body per se. At times, Israel does speak of ethnic Jews. More often in Scripture, that Israel or Israelite concept speaks of his redemption that is going to come about in his great son, the Lord Jesus. This uh, imagery of engrafting is extremely rich. I remember when I was a boy, one of our neighbors had an expert come. I guess he had a some kind of a fruit tree, and they were grafting in a new branch. And it was really interesting to watch and how he sealed it with some kind of a waxy substance and all that. And the branch itself didn't put itself on, on the trunk, right. but, but it took that farmer that knowledgeable, caring farmer with the tricks of the trade, as it were, to graft in. Can you talk to us a little bit more about this grafting? This is fascinating to me. Yeah, there's a a theme throughout both Old and New Testaments. You see this horticulture or viniculture, which is the the language that is used for um, grapes and wine. Uh, That imagery you see in both Old and New Testaments. And uh, it's a wonderful portrayal. I think you've said it well already. It's a wonderful picture of the fact that we are connected to the vine by God's grace. We are put there by his grace. We we don't attain to the blessings of our redemption by just our, our own um, biological descent. Um, even, in fact, in, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul will use the imagery in such a way that all of us are connected to the vine, whether Jew or Gentile, we are connected there by his grace. And so I, I think you put it very nicely that 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 branch doesn't get connected to the vine because it, it, it you know, it, it, it decided to do so on its own terms. Um, it required the uh, the skilled horticulturist to engraft that vine. Well, the skill in view here is far exceeding any anything that might happen in a vineyard or in an orchard. This is a, a kind of engrafting that permanently connects us in a spiritual genetic sense of the term to the very lifeblood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blood that was spilled for us is counted towards us and covers us so that everything that he has attained by God's grace becomes ours, that we are raised from the dead with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our ingrafting into Jesus makes everything that he has attained by his righteousness count to us by God's divine grace. (laughs) That's beautiful. Uh, We have maybe uh, two minutes left to our discussion today. Uh, We're talking with Dr. David Garner. He's a vice president for advancement, associate professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Garner, um, suppose uh, someone would like to read more. I'm assuming that uh, one of the first places they should go is simply the scriptures and read Galatians, read Romans, 
And yet, is there also a, a book that you might recommend to, to help people sort things out and, and acquire this um, better appreciation of the continu- basic continuity of the plan of God through all of history that points to Jesus Christ? Well, there are many books that can be useful out here. In fact, I've, uh, out there, I have just learned of one that I won't recommend yet, but maybe the next time we talk about this, I will, because I don't like to recommend books I haven't read. <laughs> uh, so I'm hesitant to do that. But there is a, a book that has become very popular in recent years that has helped people to understand the relationship of the Old Testament covenants to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that is O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. And I, I would encourage uh, um, folks to, to, to get a hold of that. It's not a difficult book to read. Um, it is uh, a very useful book to read in terms of understanding the relationship between Old and New Testament as it centers on the person and work of Christ Jesus. Well, that's good. That book is uh, by O. Palmer Robertson, Christ of the Covenants. David, um, any final thoughts as we uh, wrap up today? Well, again, thank you for this opportunity. I would just simply state this. As you begin with uh, me to consider the way in which the Scriptures speak of God's dealings with his people over the course of history, um and you work your way through Scripture and begin to see how the Old and New Testaments have this marvelous interface, you begin to discover what it actually means to be a child of God. Because the more that we study Scripture, the more that we realize that we, by faith, are united to the Son of God, and we become the sons and daughters of God. God's covenant purposes are such that he delivers the full bounty of grace to us in Jesus, and so that Jesus, as resurrected Son of God, considers us his brothers, as Hebrews 2 will say. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. Think about that, that Jesus is in no way ashamed of us. In fact, he delights in us. And as we read the scriptures together and discover who we are in that Jesus, by that ingrafting, according to the purposes of God that are from before the foundation of the world, that are then laid out for us from Old to New Testaments, culminating for us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, died, raised from the dead, and now ascended to the Father, We are a most extraordinarily blessed people, the sons and daughters of the very living God of heavens and the earth. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Garner, for encouraging us today and uh, drawing us into the scriptures to better see the person of Christ from Old Testament to New Testament. And uh, dear friend, if you're listening to this and you'd like to hear us again, we're up on our website as a podcast please visit us at uh, RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And uh, join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Dr. Garner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. We'll look forward to seeing you next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 